Welcome back, everyone, to the Homeric Epic Podcast. Last episode, we discussed the catalog of ships which dominates Book 2 of the Iliad. If you managed to make it through that, then you should have no problem with the rest of the book. But first, a quick recap of what we heard last time. Book 2 opens with Zeus sending a prophetic dream to Agamemnon, where Nestor tells him that he will take Troy the very next day. Agamemnon awakes and calls an assembly to explain this. He also explains his terrible plan to test the troops' loyalty. The captains marshal the troops together, and Agamemnon says they are going home. Soldiers make a dash for the ships, but Odysseus, with some advice from Athena, begins to check the troops' retreat. For this, he uses Agamemnon's scepter as a symbol of power, and also as a weapon to beat Thersites. With the troops prevented from leaving, Odysseus reminds them of the prophecy of the baby birds and the snake meaning they will sack Troy in the tenth year. Nestor pipes up and shames them for their cowardice, and suggests Agamemnon organize the army into tribes and then clans, which segues into the catalogue of ships. We then hear a Bronze Age account of mythical Greece, full of long names of places most of us have never heard of. Following that, we are whisked to Troy, where Iris, the messenger of the gods, alerts the Trojans that the Greeks are mobilizing. Hector then organizes the Trojans and their allies in a similar manner, and we are treated to the Trojan catalogue. The book ends on the description of the Lycian captains Glaucus and Sarpedon, and we are left to wonder, what now? What is now is that we'll be discussing Book 3, which thankfully is quite a bit more entertaining than Book 2, and with a lot more meat on its bones story-wise. We get the first meeting between Greeks and Trojans, and we are treated to a duel between heroes. Riveting stuff. I want to encourage you to read along with the podcast, as this will mean you catch all my mistakes, and will highlight the relevant themes and connections all the more. Before we start, though, let's quickly skim over the events of Book 3. Following the assembly of the armies in Book 2, the Trojans, led by Paris, march out to face the advancing Greeks. Paris proposes single combat with any Greek, which Menelaus eagerly accepts, prompting Paris to initially try to avoid the duel. Hector harshly criticizes his brother for his cowardice and for being the root cause of the entire war. Paris eventually agrees to the duel. Heralds are sent to summon Priam from Troy to officiate the oath for the duel. Meanwhile, Aphrodite calls Helen from her chamber to the walls for a view of the battlefield. Helen, longing for her Spartan home, is met with mixed feelings from the people of Troy, except for King Priam. Rather naively, Priam asks Helen about the identities of the Greek captains down on the plain, providing exposition on the key characters. The heralds then arrive in the city to inform Priam of the duel and request sacrifices for the oath. Back on the plain, Agamemnon administers the oath, Hector casts the lots, and Paris is chosen as the first to make a spear toss. The duel begins unfavorably for Paris, and Menelaus quickly gains the upper hand. As Paris faces defeat, Aphrodite, his patron goddess, intervenes, breaking his helmet strap and spiriting him away to his bedchamber. Aphrodite then persuades Helen to return to Paris's bedchamber, assuring her of his safety. Helen sees through Aphrodite's disguise and refuses to join her cowardly husband. Aphrodite threatens Helen, who submits out of fear and the book concludes with the peculiar encounter between Helen and Paris, engaged in ironic lovemaking while the cuckold in Menelaus searches for his missing duel opponent. Now this is some mythology. We've got dueling heroes, kings, 
intervening goddesses, and rest assured there are plenty of compelling connections to be made within Book 3. So let's get started. With the end of Book 2, and both sides thoroughly catalogued, the armies are ready for battle, and the Trojans set out from the safety of their walls. Of course, Homer doesn't have the Trojan army just walk over there. He lays the similes on thick when describing the approaching army. The first one he hits us with is rather strange, though. Quote, then, when all the contingents were marshaled with their leaders, the Trojans set out with ringing cries and clamor, like birds, as when the ringing cry of cranes goes up before heaven, when they flee the winter storms and monstrous rains, and with a ringing cry fly to the rivers of ocean, bearing bloodshed and earth to pygmy men. End quote. Homer is comparing the Trojans to birds screaming as they fly overhead. But not just any migratory bird, specific birds from a very obscure mythological story. From the quote, he says, they bring death and destruction on the pygmies. If you're wondering who the pygmies are and why they are relevant, you are not alone. In my research for this episode, I descended down the long and torturous rabbit hole of epic similes. And it turns out there's particular interest in the pygmy simile especially. To quickly sum up the myth being referenced here, the pygmies were a mythological race of short people, thought by the Greeks to live in North Africa. Their name derives from a pygmy, which is Greek for the distance from elbow to hand, and approximately the height that pygmies grow to. Homer has them engage in a war with cranes every year, because the cranes migrate south to take possession of the pygmies' fields. Quick aside on similes. Throughout the poems, Homer often compares his heroes to different animals in different situations. When someone is fighting bravely, they are like a ferocious lion. When someone is defending valiantly, they are like a ravenous boar. Groups of warriors can be like flocks of geese, long-necked swans or cranes, also bees or wasps, depending on the context of the scene and their movement. These animal comparisons follow patterns related to the animal being used as the vehicle in the simile. Obviously, lions are usually when the person is being ferocious or strong or brave. Boars can be used when someone is acting in an offensive or a defensive manner. Conversely, when birds are included in a simile, they are often playing the role of a prey animal. Eagles attack groups of geese, cranes, or swans, and the heroes can take either the role of the eagle or those of the prey birds. Pretty straightforward, right? The strange thing about this crane-pygmy simile, though, is why is the army described as a prey animal advancing against a foe that is quite understood to be small and weak, the pygmies? This doesn't gel with the situation at hand, that is, the Trojan army advancing against the Achaean army. We need to look in the following paragraphs for answers. When the army halts, godlike Paris steps out ahead of the Trojans, their champion for this book, and he challenges the best of the Argives to fight him in single combat. This is the first we hear of Paris in the story, but remember, this poem was created for steeped experts in Greek mythology, who are already intimately familiar with the Trojan War before reaching this part of the tale. What those people know is that Paris is not a fighter. He is a lover, a dancer, bottled by Aphrodite, and he does not belong on the battlefield. In Greek culture and mythology, cranes were closely associated with dancing, so with Paris at the head of the army, the comparison to cranes is beginning to make sense. 
Cranes are not predators, they are prey. And the description of an army this way is an ironic inversion of the conventional similes about cranes. There's another level of irony when we consider the roles of each army. Achaeans are the aggressors here, crossing the ocean to attack the Trojans. Within the simile, though, the cranes, representing Paris, cross the ocean to attack the pygmies, representing the Achaeans. All these layers of irony highlight how unfit Paris is to his current position and help to flesh out his character. Of course, this analysis goes completely unsaid in the text because it assumes a deep knowledge of the symbolism and backstory of Homer's world, which is lost on us moderns. We'll leave the simile here for the moment. Hearing the offer of single combat from Paris, Menelaus is delighted. When he calls Paris's bluff, Hector has to harshly berate his younger brother. Within his derisive speech, Hector handily sums up the beginning of the war for us while simultaneously roasting his brother for his cowardice. He leaves Paris with this final quip, quote, The Trojans are great cowards, else before now you would have worn a shirt of flying stones for your evils, such things you have done. End quote. The Greek word that is translated as shirt is kiton, and is the source of our word chitin an abundant amino polysaccharide. Both dancers and warriors wear a ketone, but this shirt of stones that he says Paris should be wearing is not that of a warrior, nor that of a dancer. It's not even a shirt. It's a euphemism for stoning. Hector's saying that the Trojans ought to have stoned Paris, and this way he wouldn't be able to rove across the sea and steal Helen, or showboat in front of the army like he's currently doing. This common language playing on dancers' attire reinforces the Paris and Crane comparison of the simile in the beginning of the book. Hector's harsh derision of his brother also serves a secondary purpose. In this first scene with the two brothers, Paris is deliberately made to act the fool, necessitating Hector's strong reproach. The rebuke of Hector serves to separate him completely from the guilt of Paris and the guilt of Troy. Hector's fighting to save Troy from destruction, and Paris is fighting because Hector is making him. The duel between Paris and Menelaus is meant to explain the beginning of the war, advance the narrative, and motivate the future of the conflict. Paris crossed the ocean to steal Helen, and Menelaus has crossed it back to retrieve her. A winner-takes-all duel between the two is a fitting, not to mention poetic, way to resolve the conflict. And indeed, the Greeks and Trojans alike know this. Menelaus says it himself in his address to the crowd, quote, Listen now to me also, for pain seizes my heart. Above all others, and I think that now Argives and Trojans can be parted as they have suffered much evil, on account of my quarrel, and on account of Alexandros who began it. End quote. After his address, the Achaeans and Trojans rejoiced. They quite clearly do not want to continue fighting. Yet they must. And against our expectations, this is the purpose of the duel. Heralds are dispatched to Troy to call King Priam to perform sacrifices and sacred oaths. This return to Troy is where we are introduced to one of the most fascinating characters of the epic, the face that launched a thousand ships, Helen. Well, technically it was 1,186 ships. We just heard the catalog after all. But who's counting? Now, knowing what we know about Helen and her story and how she ended up in Troy, let's hear the first description of Helen in the whole epic. Quote, 
she found Helen in her chamber. She was weaving a great cloth, a crimson cloak of double thickness, and was working in the many trials of the Trojan horsebreakers and bronze-clad Achaeans, trials which for her sake they had suffered under the hands of Ares. End quote. Helen has been in Troy for nine years now. In that time, much slaughter has already occurred. She weaves a reflection of the destruction she has caused in crimson red fiber. We can see she's acutely aware of the consequences of her actions. There's so many ways to read Helen as a character, but when all we are given is this statement, it's difficult to know what to make of her. But let's continue. Helen arrives at the Skian Gates, which is the main gate in and out of Troy. There, we hear the wise old men of the city agree. They can see why both sides are fighting for this woman. She is that beautiful. And let's pause here for a second and consider what we have just been told about Helen. The text, as she arrives at the Skian Gates, states she is veiled, weeping, and she is likened to an immortal goddess in appearance. That's very little to go off of when trying to imagine the most beautiful woman ever. But why is that? Consider if you tried to describe the most beautiful person imaginable. You could list every detail about their anatomy and write wondrous sonnets about their presence and shape and everything about their appearance. But obviously beauty is more than a finite list of traits. See, Homer doesn't fall into the trap of telling us what Helen looks like. He's far too clever for that. He immortalizes the beauty of Helen not through descriptive language at all, but solely by its effect. Helen is the woman so inconceivably beautiful that old men who have retired from warfare can see no blame for continuing the fighting over her. She is the woman that when you see her, you completely understand launching 1,186 ships, destroying 10-plus cities, and likely dying in order to reclaim her. Upon reaching the Skian Gates, Old King Priam beckons to Helen to sit down next to him, stating that in his eyes she is not to blame for the war, but the gods. From our point of view, this is entirely reasonable. We can see that Helen is more or less entirely at the whim of the gods, and the fact that Priam can see this as well is telling, and paints him as a wise and pious king. The following scene is a bit of a peculiarity in the telling of the tale. This scene is referred to as the Tecoscopia, which translates as viewing from the walls. What unfolds is exactly that. Priam asks Helen who the Greek heroes before him are, picking out the most important characters based on their physical noteworthiness. If you ask yourself, why doesn't Priam know who the enemy kings are if the war has been raging on for nine years at this point? Then kudos to you, dear listener. It is indeed a strange thing for Priam to ask. But with a little digging, we will see why Homer included the scene here. While we may not be at the beginning of the Trojan War, we still are at the beginning of the Iliad. The audience hasn't even been introduced to some of the main characters yet. Now, Homer could create a scene where each of the characters does or says something, but that could be clunky, and he needs to balance the Greek and Trojan actors in the story. It seems more natural to have each character's name and appearance described by someone on the outside of their group, someone who ostensibly doesn't know them by appearance and needs this information told to them. The purpose of this scene becomes even clearer when we return to the idea of a live performance. With the poems being performed live, it's confusing for the audience to sit through exposition. 
the action needs to move forward. We can't pause the march of entire armies to hear backstory without losing momentum. So the description of the Greek heroes teeters between elements that move the narrative forward. Thus, Homer positions the scene between an arrival and a departure. First Helen onto the walls, and then Priam from them. And with one fell swoop, he has accomplished introducing characters on both sides in a natural and artistic manner, while still maintaining rapid development of the scene. But if you're still wondering why the characters need introduction, if the listeners of the story already know who Odysseus and Agamemnon are, then you are still correct. The Tegoscopia is a narrative peculiarity in the Iliad for sure. One theory for the inclusion of the Tegoscopia is that it was an episode from an earlier poem about the beginning of the Trojan War, and that it was preserved and synthesized into the Iliad when it was compiled. Perhaps that could explain the apparent contradiction of Priam not knowing who the Greek captains are, but I do feel like the scene stands on its own legs if viewed from an artistic standpoint. I imagine the Tegoscopia like this. Helen arrives on the wall wearing a shining veil. Everyone is muttering at her arrival, and nobody wants to sit near her. Only wise Priam can see that the woman has just been crying, and pitying her, invites her to sit beside him. As if to help take her mind off things, he asks her to describe the Achaean leaders to him, knowing full well in advance who they are, but asking for Helen's sake nonetheless. One line from the Tecoscopia stands out as a deep point of pathos for Helen, quote, But I cannot see the two marshals of the people, Castor, breaker of horses, and the skillful boxer Polyducase, my two brothers, born with me of the same mother. Perhaps they did not follow the others from lovely Lacedaemon, or they did follow here in the sea-going ships, but now are not willing to enter the combat of men, fearing the many insults and reproaches against me. She spoke, but already the life-giving earth covered them, back there in Lacedaemon, in their beloved fatherland. End quote. Castor and Polydeuces, or more commonly, Castor and Pollux, are Helen's brothers. And while the sources do not agree on whether they were immortal, or one was mortal, or whether they alternated immortality on different days, in the Iliad at least, they are dead. One line that echoes through waves of killing in the Iliad is how such and such hero was slain and died far from their homeland. The lack of proper burial rites is of immense importance to the heroes of the Iliad, as we shall see with the corpse of Hector, and mention of said lack of burial is a point of deep pathos towards these less fortunate characters. But here, Homer has inverted the convention, as Castor and Polydeuces are not buried far from their homeland. This means they retain their kleos and can pass it on to their next generation. Yet Helen is unaware of their deaths, as she has been away for so long, and we, the readers, are left with the dramatic irony of a sister so long from her dear brothers that she knows not a thing about them. The herald arrives to interrupt this scene to tell Priam about the duel and the required oath and sacrifice. I like the small detail here, and the old man shuddered, just before Priam and Antenor set off to the battlefield. Priam is, if nothing else, a father who loves his children, even the ones who kidnap women that bring marauding armies to his doorstep. Priam arrives at the site of the duel and is immediately met with Agamemnon and Odysseus, which is mightily convenient seeing as we have just had some vivid descriptions of them. They begin the sacrifice, and Agamemnon speaks forth the following oath, quote, Father Zeus, ruling from Mount Ida, 
most glorious and greatest. And thou the Son, who oversees and overhears all things, and rivers and earth, and those of you beneath the earth, who take vengeance on men who have died, on whomever has sworn false oath. You be witnesses, you guard these trusted oaths. If Alexandros kills Menelaus, let him then have Helen and all her possessions, and we return home in our sea-going ships. But if fair-haired Menelaus kills Alexandros, then the Trojans must give back Helen and all her possessions, and pay recompense to the Argives, whatever is proper, and which will stand even for men who come hereafter. And if Priam and the sons of Priam are unwilling to pay me recompense, should Alexandros fail, then I will surely fight for compensation, remaining here until the conclusion of this war. End quote. Now this is an oath. The kind of oath you would very, very much want to keep if you made it. Let's start from the beginning. Agamemnon starts from the top. Zeus, defender of oaths, is invoked as the one who rules from Ida, not Olympus. Funny enough, there are two sacred mountains named Ida in Greek mythology and in actual Greece. One is the famous one on Crete, where Zeus was reared as a baby, and the other is near Troy in Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, and is where Zeus kidnapped Ganymede. The mention of the two Idas serves as a common ground for both sides making the oath, one representing Troy and the other the Achaean forces. He then moves down the cosmological hierarchy to the sun, Helios, who famously sees everything that happens on the earth, We'll especially see if this oath is broken. Next, the many rivers and the earth herself, and then those beneath the earth who take vengeance on men who have sworn false oaths. This is a reference to the Arrhenes, also known as the Furies, who reside in Hades. They punish people who swear false oaths and were not to be trifled with. In later Greek myth, they would hound Agamemnon's son Orestes all over Greece as punishment for him killing his mother. So Agamemnon has put his weight behind this one, and for good reason. He's likely confident that his brother could win, and he wants the payout if that happens. He then lays out the terms of the contract very clearly. Paris kills Menelaus, he may keep Helen in her possessions, and we will leave. If Menelaus kills Paris, then the Trojans must give back Helen and her possessions, and pay recompense to the Argives, which includes Agamemnon. In addition, should Paris fall and the Trojans do not pay Agamemnon, then he will continue the war. I'd like to point out here that Agamemnon has stacked the deck in his favor. If Paris wins the duel, all they have to do is leave with the large amount of plunder they already have. But if Menelaus wins, then Agamemnon would gain even more wealth as Troy pays the archives. And then if that doesn't happen, he says he'll just attack the city anyways. It's looking like a good deal for Agamemnon right now. As the oath is meant to bind both armies to a pact of peace for the time being, it needs to be solemn. And solemn it is. Soldiers from both sides proclaim as they pour libations that whosoever would break the treaty, may their brains flow thusly upon the ground, and their children's brains, and may their wives be forced by other men. This shows the perceived severity of breaking a divine oath, as the Trojans are essentially wishing the sack of their city on themselves. Besides raising the stakes to divine proportions, the other thing the oath does is make the outcomes of the duel perfectly clear. After all, the proper duel ends with one party dying, 
So this oath is airtight, right? Of course not. The duel represents a possible peaceful ending to the Trojan War, one that both sides would have actually wanted. But you may have noticed that there's much more book left to be read. Likewise, an ancient listener to the Iliad would be caught in the tension of this scene. How could the war come to this crossroads, where either outcome stops the whole thing in its tracks? Homer plays with our expectations here, causing us to question how the present circumstances will resolve into the expected prophecies that we've been told. This is how you keep a well-known story fresh. You know Troy must fall. You know Achilles must die. But right now, it looks like it's all coming to an end. How is Homer going to resolve this? With the oaths firmly in place and the gods watching, the duel is ready to begin. Hector casts lots for who will throw the first spear, and Paris' lot is drawn. Paris casting first is meant to parallel the wrong he inflicted on Menelaus when he stole Helen. And, as we expected, the duel does not begin well for Paris. His spear doesn't even pierce the shield of Menelaus, and when Menelaus throws, it penetrates all the way through, and would have been fatal had Paris not dodged it. Menelaus then proceeds to draw his silver-studded sword and bludgeon Paris across the helmet with it, shattering it with the force of the blows. Paris is obviously losing. Menelaus, though, is out of weapons and begins to drag Pallas by the helmet towards the Achaeans. The strap on Paris' helmet holds fast and chokes him as he is dragged along, until his patron goddess Aphrodite snaps the strap and enfolds Paris in a mist, teleporting him back to his bedchamber seconds before his demise at the hands of Menelaus. And then the action is broken. Quite abruptly, I might add, we are now back in Troy, in the bedchamber of Paris and Helen. Aphrodite sets out to find Helen, and in the likeness of one of her Spartan handmaidens, summons her to Paris' bedchamber, saying, quote, Come here, Alexandros summons you home. He is there, in his bedroom, on his bed that is inlaid with rings. Shining in beauty and Raymond, you would not think that he came from fighting a man, but rather that he was going to a dance, or had just left the dance and was reclining. Description of Paris the Dancer ties in with the similes we heard at the beginning, and wraps the book together with a nice bow. Paris is not meant for fighting. Hell, even when he has just fought nearly to the death, he is still a pretty boy. Helen, ever the hard character read that she is, stands up for herself in this moment. She talks back to the goddess, attempting to lay her in bed with the cowardly prince, stating, quote, Mad one, why do you so desire to seduce me in this way? Will you drive me to some further place among well-settled cities, to Phrygia or lovely Maeonia? Perhaps there too is some mortal man beloved by you, since now Menelaus has vanquished godlike Alexandros, and desires that I, loathsome as I am, be taken home. Is it for this reason you stand here now conniving? Go, sit yourself beside him, announce the haunts of the gods. Never turn your feet to Olympus, but suffer for him and tend him forever, until he makes you either his wife or his girl slave. As for me, I will not go there. It would be shameful to share the bed of that man. The Trojan woman will blame me afterwards, the sufferings I have in my heart without end. End quote. Quite the harsh thing to say to a goddess, but this desperate cry is Helen's small way of fighting for her autonomy from the whims of the gods. Aphrodite's having none of this, though, and reproaches her. Quote, Do not provoke me, wicked girl, lest I drop you in anger, and hate you as much as I now terribly love you, and devise painful hostilities, 
and you are caught in the middle of both, Trojans and Danaeans, and are destroyed by an evil fate. So she spoke, and Helen born of Zeus was frightened, and she left, covering herself with her shining white robe, in silence, and escaped notice of the woman of Troy, and the divine one led her. End quote. The final line, and the divine one led her, powerfully sums up the relationship between mortals and their patron gods in the Iliad. Helen is cast as the unwilling recipient of the love of Aphrodite, who is capable of hating someone as much as she, the goddess of love, can love them. But Aphrodite is not solely the goddess of love, she is also the goddess of sex. And so she interrupts the duel in her own way, by initiating the coupling of her two divine patronies. This is what it's like to be loved by a god. Paris, earlier in the book, when he is being rebuked by Hector, mentions something along these lines, quote, do not cast in my teeth the desirable gifts of golden Aphrodite. Not to be thrown away are the glorious gifts of the gods. Whatever it is they might give, not at will can a man obtain them. End quote. When you are loved by a god, you are their plaything, which perhaps Paris knows a bit about as a fellow plaything of Aphrodite. Book three ends with a very strange encounter between Paris and Helen, orchestrated by the goddess of love. Helen rebukes her husband for not fighting Menelaus and wishing he would, but recommends he doesn't because he would surely die. With possibly the most character-building comeback of the entire epic, Paris replies and says that Athena helped Menelaus, but that he's too horny and wants to go to bed right now. Maybe wondering if Paris' strange behavior, having just nearly lost a duel to the death, but it is very much in his nature. Remember, this is the man who went after a choice between dominion over all of Europe and Asia, wisdom and skill in war, or the most beautiful woman in the world, in all likelihood stood there drooling at the mention of her. The judgment of Paris is a play on the appetites of young men, who despite being offered unimaginable greatness, would still rather try and get laid. And that Paris does. We then travel back to the battlefield where Menelaus is roving about trying to find Paris, and so are the Trojan soldiers who would gladly give him up. Agamemnon declares the duel won in Menelaus's favor, and the book ends. A real cliffhanger ending. While I was writing this episode, I came to the end and counted my words. I noticed I was about a thousand words less than the first two episodes, which I thought was peculiar. It felt like this one took me just as long to write. So I went back to my online Iliad text reference, and notice that book three is the second shortest book in the poem, with 461 lines, only slightly longer than book 19, with 424 lines. For comparison, the longest book of the poem is book five, with 909 lines, roughly double the length of book three. Now, book divisions within the Iliad are not so simple. We don't really know the rhyme or the reason to why they stop at certain places, and scholars are fairly sure that there are 24 of them because there are 24 letters in the Greek alphabet. In case you hadn't noticed, the Iliad is a long poem. 15,693 bloody lines. Far too long for a rhapsode to perform in one sitting. But each individual book? That's much more manageable. And obviously, you have to have a way to order your scrolls, right? You can see the logic there. Some scholars contend that the book divisions are a later addition to the text and were not present when the poem was originally transformed from oral to written. 
Others highlight the placement of the book divisions as evidence that they certainly are intentional. And I thought this analysis was rather illuminating and contrary to our traditional notion of chapters. In the paper titled The Placement of Book Divisions in the Iliad, scholar Bruce Hyden analyzes the scission points between books, and he notes something very interesting about the scenes immediately preceding and following a chapter change. Firstly, when we think about dividing a book, or even a TV show for that matter, what kind of scenes are normally the ending point for a chapter or episode? Obviously, the creators save the most important scenes for the end, and you can easily think of a TV show or book that ends this way. But if you analyze the scenes preceding and following a chapter in the Iliad, something counterintuitive appears. The scenes at the end of each chapter have little effect on the narrative at all, while the scenes at the beginning of the chapter tend to dramatically influence the course of the narrative. For example, the beginning of Book 3 that we just read starts with the armies marching out for the first time in the poem, bringing the Trojans one step closer to ruin. The ending of the same book has Paris and Helen coupled together under Aphrodite's watchful eye while Menelaus ranges the battlefield looking for him. I'll mention now that this scene is entirely superfluous and does not affect the rest of the story in any meaningful way. But the first scene does. Another example of this is the beginning of Book 2, where Zeus sends the ruinous stream to Agamemnon that he will capture Troy that very day, causing him to rally his troops and leading to the catalogue of ships. Book 2 ends with the Trojan catalogue of allies, finally describing the Lycian captains Sarpedon and Glaucus, which, while they are both important characters, is a bit of an awkward way to end the book. While we normally expect the end of chapters to provide a sense of closure, this is clearly not the case, and the other chapters follow the same trend. Bruce Hyden argues that this pattern is evident of deliberate placement of chapter sections, which certainly seems very plausible. The end of each book is certainly caused by its beginning, but it doesn't provide closure to the chain of events. Instead, the end of each chapter is defined by the diversion caused by the next scene. It's simply the best time for something new to happen that will move the story along. Okay, so we've identified the possible mechanism by which the books have been divided, and since it follows a pattern, we can assume that divisions are intentional and are meant to assist in our appreciation of the story. Let's think of an example that supports this. When you read a book for the first time, you don't know what scenes are going to be the most important to the narrative. Thus, you read along and your attention waxes and wanes, maybe depending on how long you've been reading or how interesting at a surface level your current location in the book is. It's only in hindsight, after the consequences of a scene have played out, that you can say to yourself, ooh, that scene was important after all. You could also apply this concept to an oral performance of a story. You don't initially know what is going to be most important, and unlike reading, if you miss something, you can't flip back a few pages and reread it. Bar just continues on with the poem. Thus organizing the important scenes to occur right at the beginning of a chapter or performance ensures that the audience is at their most alert and receptive, so that they don't miss important scenes like the quarrel of Achilles and Agamemnon, or the panic of the generals before they beseech Achilles. This provides the listener with a means of identifying important scenes in the story before they occur, which greatly enhances the live listening experience. This same logic of scene placements indicating their importance can be applied retrospectively as well. The final scene in each book, while not narratively important, 
often contains some great thematic or emotional richness. The prime examples are the ekphrasis of Achilles' shield in Book 18, not important to the story at all, but beautiful in its own right, and the lament of Andromache in Book 22, a gut-wrenching scene, but one that could be omitted. Both these scenes, and many others, deserve extended reflection and consideration, which is not possible if they occur anywhere but the end of a chapter. For these reasons, Bruce argues that whomever created the chapter divisions had an intimate knowledge and appreciation for the structure of the Iliad, and thus chose the locations as to maximize the artistry of each book. He claims that the ancient commentators demonstrate no such appreciation for the fine structure of the Iliad, and for this reason were likely not the source of the book divisions. Instead, it was more likely that it was the original author or transcriber or composer of the Iliad that imposed the divisions onto the poem. There's certainly significant evidence that the chapter divisions of the Iliad are carefully crafted and intentional aspect of the poem structure. But, like many things with the Homeric poems, it's up for continual debate and reflection, which is just part of the fun. That's the end of Book 3. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I had fun learning about obscure pygmy myths and epic similes. You've probably figured this out, but the next episode will cover Book 4 of the Iliad and will feature the first clash of the armies, setting the stage for the rest of the story. If you want to hear more, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, or follow me on Substack to get all the episodes and anything else I find interesting on the Homeric epics, all for free. Until then, Rostai Akustoi Philoi.